A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, November 4th, 2022, the 653rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and you'll be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the show on a range of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. Elon Musk has moved forward with further layoffs at Twitter. Last night, Business Insider received a copy of the letter, the email that was sent around to Twitter's full staff. It said, team, in an effort to place Twitter on a healthy path, we will go through the difficult process of reducing our global workforce on Friday. We recognize that this will impact a number of individuals who have made valuable contributions to Twitter, but this action is unfortunately necessary to ensure the company's success moving forward. Given the nature of our distributed workforce and our desire to inform impacted individuals as quickly as possible, communications for this process will take place via email. By 9 a.m. Pacific time on Friday, November 4th, everyone will receive an individual email with the subject line, your role at Twitter. Please check your email, including your spam folder. If your employment is not impacted, you will receive a notification via your Twitter email. If your employment is impacted, you will receive a notification with next steps via your personal email. If you do not receive an email from Twitter by 5 p.m. Pacific on Friday, please email peoplequestions at twitter.com. To help ensure the safety of each employee as well as Twitter systems and customer data, our offices will be temporarily closed and all badge access will be suspended. If you are in an office or on your way to an office, please return home. We acknowledge this is an incredibly challenging experience to go through, whether or not you are impacted. Thank you for continuing to adhere to Twitter policies that prohibit you from discussing 
confidential company information on social media, with the press or elsewhere. We are grateful for your contributions to Twitter and for your patience as we move through this process. Now, that's a pretty interesting email. Basically, employees got this email yesterday in the afternoon, probably early to mid afternoon on the West Coast. And while the important email was going to come by this morning, that email was probably pretty jarring for a lot of people. If they were in the office, they were told, now you've received this email, go home. Your badge access is going to be finished from this moment forward unless we retain you. And you have to wonder exactly what it is the people who were fired were doing. We don't have that information yet, at least not in any complete way. But it is very interesting that the offices and you would have to assume the systems and these employees access to the systems were immediately locked down. Now, I talked earlier this week how there's been a pretty strong level of censorship still present on Twitter. Accounts like Patel Patriots were banned this week. My account is throttled beyond imagination. Unless you're following me and engaged with my content, there is a strong likelihood you will never see my tweets. My replies will not appear in the reply sections of other people's tweets. You have to click into the show additional replies option to be able to see them. They're marked with little offensive tags. I'm ghost banned and shadow banned and every other kind of band you could imagine. And the fact that for some people, the censorship is still scaling up. That's a pretty good indication that Elon has not made any significant changes. And he actually says that as well. He tweeted this morning. Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation. And we did everything we could to appease the activists. Extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America. And so we talked about that a couple of days ago, all of the groups that are weighing in on just how much Twitter still needs to be censored. And we discussed their trust and safety council and their various oversight boards, all of the organizations that have their special portals into Twitter so that they can adjust and affect the level of censorship on Twitter that they euphemistically call content moderation. Now, you basically have to wonder at this point if all of these various organizations, if their function in this trust and safety council and their function in regards to content moderation was simply finding tweets and accounts that they believed were effectively countering their chosen narratives. And if they were submitting those accounts for censorship and being granted that censorship. When I was working in Los Angeles at a company that ran celebrity social media accounts, we had access to the talent relations coordinators. And if our clients were having problems on the platforms, those talent relations teams were able to guide us and help to fix the problems that our clients were having. It was essentially a PR relationship. The celebrity clients are very valuable to the platforms and for them to remain valuable to the platforms, the platforms have to remain valuable to the celebrities. And part of what the celebrities value about these platforms is that the platforms are willing to help protect them. And it's not just 
from hate campaigns and harassment. It's from stuff that makes them look bad. Because once you expand your thinking from individual instances of potential harassment on a given post, for example, and you focus more on what a company like Pfizer might do over the course of six months or a year or two years in terms of a long-term narrative rollout for a product or an idea that they want adopted, something that will attract investors. It really doesn't matter what it is. If they're treated in a similar manner to the celebrity clientele of the big tech platforms, then you can imagine they have access to some version of the same protection that the celebrity clients get. And so if you wanted to streamline this process, the way to do it would not be by constantly adjusting the algorithm necessarily. It would be more targeted on the things that are actually bothering these companies. And a lot of times those are specific individual American citizens who are posting things that the organizations or the talent don't like. It would not surprise me in the least if Twitter had teams of content moderators who then each had a series of individual accounts that they were meant to be looking over and protecting, which means submitting dissenters through the portal for censorship on behalf of the accounts for which they have oversight. It's beginning to seem to me like this operation is significantly more like a white glove service, very tailored to the needs of different companies, celebrities, political figures, and probably the global organizations. Now, it's worth pointing out the irony that the same people who are suggesting that the major advertisers stop advertising on Twitter if Elon Musk opens it up to free speech, those are the same people who are very upset that Elon Musk has fired all of these employees. It would seem blatantly hypocritical to be demanding that a company keeps its employees on staff while you are pulling your money away from that company, forcing it to make changes to its business. That's how it would work in a free market. You've taken away a lot of this company's revenue, things like firing redundant employees or employees that are unnecessary to continue the business function would be totally natural. It's exactly what you'd expect. Well, we don't have the money we thought we were going to have. Therefore, we can't pay all these employees. But that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with companies whose advertising money spent on Twitter isn't just to put ads out so that people will see those ads and then buy their products. It's so that they have access to the information manipulation that Twitter provides. The value is not only that Twitter places their ads in front of eyeballs. It's that prior to a week ago, Twitter was also easily manipulable. So these companies wouldn't actually have any dissent to their advertising message. So it's not just that their product appears in front of people, it's that their product appears in front of people as the only worthwhile thing for those people to buy or do or believe. They're controlling both the message and the counter message. And that's what makes it so dangerous. 
particularly when you get up to the level of, say, a Pfizer or Amazon or Capital One or Apple. These are some of the top advertisers on Twitter. Amazon's Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. So he has the propaganda media outlet prepared to help create the illusion of the world that most benefits Amazon. And they also have access to the information weapon that is used to manipulate the public into believing that that world is not only the only world and the real world, but the best world. The system as they had it breaks down if they don't still have the access and the ability to manipulate that information. So you really do have to wonder what exactly the advertising dollars were paying for. They seem to be getting really, really upset about what Elon Musk is doing, and they're claiming it's because it's going to hurt their business as if they no longer need people's eyeballs on their product. There's nothing about a free speech environment that would make that specific function impossible. Pfizer can certainly still put up Pfizer ads that would appear in people's feeds, but they may not have access to the ability to have their paid propagandists out there on Twitter, having all of their posts boosted into people's feeds saying, see, this is what the doctors and the experts actually say. And then having the counterpoint hidden. Now, that's not commonly what we think of as advertising, but you can imagine that all of the direction on a program like that would be coming from the marketing departments of these major corporations. At its base, this function is literally controlling the messaging of the company. And if you're not sold that this is not about the ability to simply put eyeballs on your product, this is from this morning. This gets right down to the root of it. This is Eliza Blue, who I mentioned a few days ago on the podcast. She has done research on the presence of child pornography on Twitter and the fact that Twitter has often refused to take it down. She wrote, it will never not blow my mind that advertisers are pulling away from Twitter because of Elon Musk. But in September, all of the Twitter advertisers received an email from Twitter saying that they potentially paid to run ads next to child sexual abuse material and they stayed. And she links to an article from Reuters. She also says, I'd be perfectly fine with every brand ending their relationship with Twitter over them being unable to remove child sexual abuse material at scale. That's normal, but it's a bad look not to do it over that and to do it over Elon Musk a month later. And just for some context, this Reuters article, the headline from September 29th, 2022 Brands blast Twitter for ads next to child pornography accounts. Some major advertisers, including Dyson, Mazda, Forbes, and PBS Kids, have suspended their marketing campaigns or removed their ads from parts of Twitter because their promotions appeared alongside tweets soliciting child pornography, the companies told Reuters. DirecTV and ThoughtWorks also told Reuters late on Wednesday they have paused their advertising on Twitter. Brands ranging from Walt Disney Company, NBC Universal, and Coca-Cola Company to a children's hospital 
were among more than 30 advertisers that appeared on the profile pages of Twitter accounts peddling links to the exploitative material, according to a Reuters review of accounts identified in new research about child sex abuse online from cybersecurity group Ghost Data. Some of the tweets include keywords related to rape and teens and appeared alongside promoted tweets from corporate advertisers, the Reuters review found. In one example, a promoted tweet for shoe and accessories brand Cole Hahn appeared next to a tweet in which a user said they were trading teen slash child content. So that is what they've known they were operating with for a month. And the truth is they've known much, much longer than that, because certainly many other people have known, including me because it is in public court cases that this has been happening for a very long time. The corporations absolutely must have known. They didn't stop advertising until it went public. And then we can still understand that many of those companies are still advertising now, even after having learned that and the public learning it. But they stayed. That revelation was not enough for them to pull their advertising from Twitter but Elon Musk allowing people to say that the obviously stolen election was stolen or that the vaccines were actually never safe or effective, that's too much. And it's always because we have accepted as a society that if certain people have any potential of getting offended, then real world chaos and violence will break out immediately making the speech inherently dangerous. Now, the First Amendment was set up specifically to make sure we wouldn't end up in a situation where entire segments of the population were simply not allowed to say the things they know to be true. And that's what we have here. It's not about fact checks. It's not about accuracy. It's not even that the words are malicious or unkind. It's just that the speech makes it harder for certain people and certain organizations to advance their own agenda in light of full public knowledge of what they're doing. And so it's hard to believe that all of the whining about these layoffs has anything to do with protecting the jobs of these poor young workers. But that's not how we're being told it by our betters. This is the communist Ben Collins on MSNBC this morning. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, Ben Collins was one of those names mentioned in the quickly banned Twitter thread about how so many of the people setting the tone for the conversation on Twitter were just spoiled rich kid ne'er-do-wells who worked in mainstream media. That's who Ben Collins is, but they claim he's some sort of expert on the dark extremist parts of the online America first movement. Because I know that you've been talking to a lot of folks um, employed by Twitter. What are they telling you? What does the separation also look like the details of that? Sure. Uh, so the most important thing that Twitter employees want to stress is that the company is a nightmare right now yeah. and it, you cannot work there. And the website is built on sticks and it might fall apart. So how is it cards? Um, if it falls apart by Tuesday, we're in trouble in terms of getting election information out there. The other thing they're warning to me about, wow. by the way, to regular people, like, yeah. you know, this is the thing. These people have lost their jobs and this is what they're worried about right now. 
on Tuesday, uh, on, mon- on Monday, let's start on Monday. On Monday, anybody can maybe buy a verification badge, right? Ver- verify For $8. Check. Right. Yeah. You could go and pose as anybody, an election official, a uh, public figure, whatever. And there's, they've cut the moderation staff so severely that there's no way they're going to catch up in time to these lies. Wow. So using Twitter as a trustworthy source of information on Tuesday is going to be a nightmare. That's what people inside of Twitter or people who just got laid off, some people who are still there are warning about because they go and talk to Elon, who is deeply out of his depth, objectively. And they don't know what's going to happen next week during the United States elections. So who is the person, what is the entity that helps identify that Twitter will no longer be a viable source that we have looked to for for so long going forward? Because we are in the age of misinformation. I mean, the timing could not be worse for all this stuff. The entity is us. We're going to learn the hard way on Tuesday if if he does this by Monday. And he wants to. He says he wants to ship this product by Monday. Uh, This is a way to get $8 out of lots of users. Um, we're going to see what happens. I, I'm, I don't mean to sound the alarm quite so severely here, but this could be really bad. So the regime and its apparatchiks are melting down because they think that they won't have control over the public flow of information next week during the election period. And it was subtle, but I hope you caught the fact that he just intimated that without the blue badge of authority, people won't know who to get reliable information from. If the blue check system for personal verification going forward after Elon implements changes doesn't actually verify that the person is who they say they are, I would be awfully surprised. At some level, you have to put your information in that ties to a bank account or a credit card account or some kind of account. I don't think that they're taking crypto for it yet. I certainly haven't heard that news. And you might imagine that they would have you provide some sort of legal identification, verifying who you are as well, which it's worth mentioning is a higher level of security than ballots have in most states. So the likelihood that somebody's going to buy a blue check for an account and then pose as an election worker, this is insane. Does he expect that Twitter is going to have a verification system for election workers? Election workers are, by and large, just normal Americans trying to perform a civic duty. Assuming that they are not people hired by Stacey Abrams company happy faces to rig elections in Georgia, that is. So are they not allowed to tweet about their work as election workers? They're not allowed to say online what they see. Do they have to be verified first? What is the danger of someone posing as an election worker on Twitter? How does that work? Because anyone can claim that and they either are an election worker or not. This would have to be a matter of public discernment, no matter how you slice it up. If the person is not already verified, if they are just a normal American out there working at elections, you can't tell that just by how they describe themselves. It either is true and they can verify it or it isn't. And thankfully for those of us who haven't spent our last two and a half years 
getting all of our information from legacy social media, we have already learned how to discern who's actually real and who's not to a pretty high degree of accuracy. We're going to be wrong about that sometimes, but the community is generally self-correcting when we are. The thing is that they need this level of authority. They need to rely on their authority and on their credentials because that's where the entire weight of their argument comes from. They're never pointing at facts. They're saying experts say some experts believe according to experts, according to some experts, according to an expert with knowledge of the situation, according to four anonymous sources familiar with the situation. That is what they say all the time. That's why you have to believe it, because they're telling you that someone who would know has said so. That's it. That's an argument to authority, and it's actually an argument to anonymous authority. You are having to trust their authority that they are being honest about what they've been told, and you have to trust the authority of whoever they say they talked to while they keep that person anonymous. And they say all of it has to be believed because the person reporting it has the little blue check mark on Twitter. Now, hopefully Elon also does something that eliminates millions of bots on Monday. That would be incredible if every media figure and communist politician and celebrity lost thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of followers in one day. In fact, we may find out that prominent accounts on Twitter don't have a real person attached to them at all. That they're simply sock puppet accounts being run by someone else to propagate a certain narrative, but are nonetheless verified as actual people anyway. There's nothing impossible about that happening, despite Twitter's practice of wanting to have an ID in order to verify an account. They verify corporate accounts all the time. They verify the accounts of AI influencers. You don't actually need a person there. You just need the right person asking for an account to be verified. There's nothing stopping that account from representing that they are a real person without actually being a real person. And the bots on Twitter are as big a problem as any of the verification stuff. In fact, I'd argue they're a much bigger problem because they are part of the narrative manipulation. They're the other side of the censorship. They can take down my posts. They can ban my account. They can shadow ban me. So I think I'm on there reaching people, but it turns out I really am not. But on the other side of that, we have the ability from bot generated engagement to promote ideas and narratives and concepts and beliefs and worldviews that are believed by almost no one except when you look on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or wherever, and they seem to be endorsed by everyone. They go viral. They have massive engagement. News articles are written about the post just because there's so much engagement. We have media covering what happens on Twitter, even though Twitter is a fully censored space with rampant propaganda, rampant corporate funded boosting of certain content and a population of bots 
promoting all of this and reinforcing all of this as if they were actual people when we know that they aren't. And this stuff has real world impact that might not be easily recognizable. This is from Ice Age Farmer on Telegram yesterday. Ice Age Farmer is an account that has been completely banned from Twitter. He writes, massive anti-Russian bot army, 80% of tweets exposed by Australian researcher. An Australian university has unearthed millions of tweets by fake bot accounts pushing disinformation on the Ukraine war. 80% of tweets about the 2022 Russia-Ukraine invasion in its early weeks were part of a covert propaganda campaign originating from automated fake bot accounts. And he says this is part of the cognitive warfare strategy that NATO openly discussed next generation social engineering. And he links to that. He goes on. The system tried to front run this with mainstream media talking points on a, quote, dead Internet conspiracy theory, end quote, that feels real. It masked the literal deployment of armies of bots across Twitter, Telegram, any social network comment section, Reddit, etc., etc. These bot agents mix in poison pills to signals intelligence by, for example, having bots yell MAGA or Go Putin in whatever channels they want to shut down. Later, big data analytics announced that all homesteading channels are Putin supporters. Seriously, there are Gates funded organizations doing this, and they intend in the future to use these associations to censor any voice. So it's basically you're guilty by association and what you are guilty of associating with is an army of bots who you haven't been associating with. They don't care. These are ways to target people. They're meant to sway public opinion by appealing to basic crowd psychology. And he says, recall the Ash conformity experiments. And those were the experiments designed to test the influence of majority opinion and whether or not people would be inclined to go along with the majority, even when they can tell what the majority thinks is obviously incorrect. He goes on to say that the bots are also used to annoy real users who are actually trying to find factual data. And I can certainly attest to that because Twitter is a wasteland for trying to find valuable information until it's fixed. It is so bad. Telegram is so much better in terms of actually trying to learn and understand what's happening in the world. Twitter is more of a battlefield and that's got its own productive qualities to it. But until there's free speech over there, the idea that Twitter can be a place for changing hearts and minds sounds pretty silly. It's Certainly not effective, and it may well be a complete waste of time. I have discovered over the last couple of weeks of using Twitter that in terms of my own knowledge and my own thinking about what's actually happening in the world, I am far better served by being on Telegram, where relevant information is popping up constantly in digestible forms rather than seeing people tweet about TV shows or trying to make the best jokes about the latest popular controversy. People are mostly on Twitter to do reputation management and create their own small mobs of influence. 
that they can easily turn on anyone who disagrees with them. And through that, they gain power and status and prestige. And of course, they gain attention and people begin to take them more seriously because they are seen as prominent speakers or thinkers simply on their ability to create engagement on Twitter. In terms of a place to actually learn what's going on in the world, Twitter right now is terrible. But back to Ice Age Farmer, he says, further, search engines have devolved into curated sets of links. This was absolutely openly confirmed by World Economic Forum reps working with Google to override results for terms like climate change. With curated search results limiting what an inexperienced user can find and bots constituting 80% of the tweets on a given topic, the internet really is dead. And that really describes the information environment that most normies are subject to. Think about how the people who think all of us are crazy actually get their information. If you are a normal American, you have a smartphone. You probably have a very passing interest in the real details of what's happening, the real details of any political story, but you probably have very public expressed political opinions and those expressions of political opinion are always designed to fit a niche about where you perceive yourself in a culture. You want to say the things that make it seem like you are informed and caring and attentive to what's going on in the world. You care about justice. You want to end racism. You want trans people to be respected and blah, blah, blah. You just go down the list. Everything that makes you sound smart or nice, that is something you will project online. And because people like to have some sort of air of legitimacy when they're doing this, they will say that they keep themselves informed. And most of what that is, is watching cable news or reading mainstream media. And people might not realize their commitment to doing either of those things because they don't actively seek out those channels when they're trying to search for information. They might not have a subscription to the New York Times or the Atlantic. They don't read through the New York Times every day. They don't read through the Atlantic every day. They just see an article every now and then. So to them, they're not following the mainstream media. They're following a variety of sources. And from the mainstream point of view, you see CNN as positioned somewhere between MSNBC and Fox. And so you'll think that the two sides of the conversation are being had by MSNBC and Fox and that CNN is somehow moderating those two sides of the debate. And so it doesn't bother you that the cable channels are out there. You see a clip from MSNBC, you see a clip from Fox, you see a clip from CNN, and you think you've got a well-rounded view. You often get your news from your phone. You don't seek the news out on your phone. The phone has a news app that will send you notifications throughout the day. And those notifications are algorithmically tailored to what they want you to see. And so they will pop up headlines from 10 different sources or 20 different sources or 30 different sources. And you will read those headlines. Rarely will you read the articles. But it hardly matters because the articles aren't really any better anyway. The articles are designed to keep people attached and addicted to the central narrative. And the headlines are meant to do the same in short form. 
Someone who's busy and going about their day doesn't care too much about any of this stuff. They see a headline pop up. It says it's from Fox News. They read it. They see another headline pop up from the Atlantic. They read it. They have slightly different takes about what's going on, but they both agree about what's going on. And so as that casual consumer of news, you assume that the underlying story is definitely true because both Fox and the Atlantic have agreed that it's true. Things like the vaccines are very safe and effective and masks work and lockdowns work and you have to trust the experts. And January 6th, was a very violent insurrection, and Joe Biden received 81 million real legal American votes. Now, The Atlantic and Fox have different takes on that, but the underlying story these people take away as being true, even when the underlying story is not true at all. So it doesn't matter what takes Fox and The Atlantic have on it. And for most of these people, legacy social media platforms serve the same purpose. They follow their interests on those platforms, and occasionally politics feeds into it because everybody wants to be right about politics all the time, particularly people who don't know anything about politics. And so their incoming information comes from legacy media outlets, the corporate media owned and run by very, very few people with their own agendas to enforce. And the information produced and disseminated by these companies is then algorithmically targeted to you as an individual so that you will see the information produced by the corporate media that the same people governing it all want you to see. And while you are seeing this information, you will have the illusion that you sought it out yourself because you were interested and that because it's from what you believe is a wide variety of sources, you're more inclined to trust that the underlying event being discussed is absolutely true and cannot be questioned by anyone. You imagine that all that questioning, all that vetting was done before that information ever reaches you. And yet all the information you've taken in so far has been created and disseminated and targeted by the exact same people and entities and organizations. Now, it might be different organizations controlling different parts of it, but they're all allied in their priorities and in their agenda. And so you've gotten all this information in. You imagine that yourself as a good and smart person have done your duty in parsing all of this information, but there are a few things you have doubts about. So what will you do? Well, if you don't know how to get information in 2022, you will go to Google or you will go to DuckDuckGo and you will type in your search terms and you will have the results delivered for you that the same people, entities and organizations want you to see. Now you've even convinced yourself that you absolutely did check to see whether or not the underlying story was true. And once you've read some fact checks and some debunkings and some articles from various sources that all support the thing you already believed from having read the headlines that were given to you on the screen of your iPhone, you will believe that you really have checked. 
you really have learned about an issue and now you are entirely certain that the view you held initially is absolutely correct. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. The system is designed to make sure that everyone believes all of the same things and that all of those things are the things that the people who own all these systems want you to believe. This is the video that Ice Age Farmer attached from the World Economic Forum. You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world, you know, should know it. And, and the platforms themselves also do. Um, but again, it's, it's, it is, um, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active in. Now, it should be obvious, but you need to understand that there's only one reason why the most powerful people in the world would want full dominant control over all of the information out there. It's because they're lying. The Post Millennial is now reporting that Twitter's content curation team has been axed amid mass layoffs. The curation team, the group responsible for highlighting events on Twitter, has been fired, employees say. Here's to the past and present curation tweeps I've had the absolute pleasure of working with for the past 18 months, said Laura Savis of Twitter. And tweeps are what they call Twitter employees. They're the Twitter peeps. Isn't it cute that all of the millennials and Zoomers have nicknames for everyone that works at the company? According to Twitter's description, the curation team is responsible for highlighting and contextualizing the best events and stories that unfold on Twitter. Our work, this is from their description, our work across multiple product surfaces, including topics, trends, descriptions, and moments, makes it easy for customers to experience only on Twitter conversations and get the most out of the platform, regardless of which accounts they follow. The description continues. Now, there is no conversation worth having that happens only on Twitter. We manually monitor trends and work to add context to help answer the question, why is this trending? We do this by attaching a representative tweet to the trend, adding a title and description, or curating a moment to give more direct context. We may also add a combination of these. The team was also responsible for topics that they say helped users find relevant info. The curation team's firing comes amid mass layoffs at the company under the direction of new owner Elon Musk. Twitter employees were notified in the email that the layoffs were set to begin. Workers were instructed to go home and not return to the offices on Friday as the cuts proceeded. The message, which came from a generic address and was signed Twitter, did not detail the total number of layoffs, according to The New York Times. Earlier this week, Musk dissolved Twitter's board of directors and became the sole director of the company. Musk has also made it clear that he would be ending Twitter's work from home policies. So it seems that Twitter's board of directors 
full of globalists is gone. Twitter's executives who ran the censorship regime are gone. And a good part of Twitter's content moderation team is gone. All of this is excellent. They're not in communication, it seems, with the Trust and Safety Council. And hopefully all of this is an indication that the outside influence on what would be censored for the benefit of those outside organizations is being removed. And just that alone should create a big improvement, but naturally it's not enough. Elon Musk needs to work as quickly as possible to make Twitter a fair and open platform and a home for actual free speech. It's amazing that we've gotten to the point where many in our society think that speech can and should be curtailed just because some people with some credentials and some blue check marks complain. Now, one of the things that they've been complaining the most about this week is how absolutely nobody is believing their story about Paul Pelosi. And part of the reason nobody's believing their story about Paul Pelosi is because they can't get the story straight about what we are supposed to believe about Paul Pelosi. This is NBC reporter Miguel Almaguer this morning. Good morning. When officers arrived here at the Pelosi home exactly a week ago today, they initially didn't have any idea exactly what was going on. They knew they had a high priority call on their hand. What was unclear, what was happening inside the property just behind me. This morning, Paul Pelosi is home, back at the house that became a crime scene a week ago today. NBC News learning new details about the moments police arrived. Sources familiar with what unfolded in the Pelosi residence now revealing when officers responded to the high priority call, they were seemingly unaware they'd been called to the home of the Speaker of the House. After a knock and announce, the front door was opened by Mr. Pelosi. The 82-year-old did not immediately declare an emergency or tried to leave his home, but instead began walking several feet back into the foyer toward the assailant and away from police. It's unclear if the 82-year-old was already injured or what his mental state was, say sources. According to court documents, when the officer asked what was going on, defendant smiled and said everything's good. But instantaneously, a struggle ensued as police clearly saw David DePap strike Paul Pelosi in the head with a hammer. After tackling the suspect, officers rushed to Mr. Pelosi, who was lying in a pool of blood. What we do know is he brutally attacked Mr. Pelosi and attempted to kill him. After spending several days in the ICU, Pelosi, who is recovering from a fractured skull and serious injuries to his arm and hand, is now home where Capitol Police remain on alert. Investigators have previously said Pelosi did not know DePap when the 42-year-old broke into his home. Why Pelosi didn't try to flee or tell responding officers he was in distress is unclear. Fear takes over. Fear freezes people. This morning, the 82-year-old, lucky to be alive, after an intruder nearly killed him in his own home. 
Law enforcement, tell, law enforcement officials tell us the bottom line here is this was a terrifying situation. We still don't know exactly what unfolded between Mr. Pelosi and the suspect for the 30 minutes they were alone inside that house before police arrived. Officials who were investigating this matter would not go into further details about these new details. Craig, back to you. Oh, yeah, one thing's for sure. So you have to think that they were putting this out to strengthen the original story, but that's not how it's been received. And it seems that NBC has realized that Greg Price pointed out on Twitter, NBC has now removed this segment from their website and added a note saying it never should have aired because it did not meet our reporting standards. But they tweeted it out themselves. Even the Today Show account tweeted out this report. How did it get through all of their barriers of vetting and verification to the point where it was sent out from their major social media platforms, but it also didn't meet their standard. And let's remember what their standard is. Their standard is absolutely non-existent. They have no standards. They have published nonstop lies about Donald Trump and his supporters for well over seven years now. But consider how we were just told this story. He basically just read the FBI's affidavit and said these are from court documents and accepts all of that as proof that that's what happened. Now, that's not what happened. That's what the FBI says happened. There's no reason to just take their word for it. And thankfully, in our legal system, if it were properly functioning, a judge and jury would not take the FBI's word for it either. Right now, these are what you might call baseless claims. Same as the claim made by the police officer that NBC reporter spoke to. It cut away for a second. You would have seen it on the video. But the police officer said, well, what we do know is that the attacker struck Mr. Pelosi in the head and tried to kill him. So the police officer is rendering a verdict of attempted homicide without waiting for all the facts to come in. That doesn't seem very responsible. But what's funny about the people who say everyone needs to be very responsible in talking about these things is that they would call me very irresponsible for pointing out that none of these things should actually be accepted as fact without any evidence to show that they are true. It's not proven at all that David DePap was attempting to murder Paul Pelosi. Paul Pelosi, according to the actual record of the case, as confirmed by the mainstream media in that clip, did not seem to be in any danger or even think he was in any danger when the police arrived. And that reflects the evidence we have regarding the 911 call, where he called his attacker by name, called him David, and said that he was a friend. It also reflects the way the police responded to the call. They didn't rush in there, guns blazing, worried that the husband of the Speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States of America was about to be murdered with a hammer by a half-naked hippie who was also a drug addict and most likely a pervert. From everything we can tell, this situation was going normally until the attacker decided to grab a hammer from Paul Pelosi's hand and hit him with it. 
Now, you may have thought that the whole COVID thing was kind of wrapping up. Even Joe Biden said that we were no longer in a pandemic. But naturally, they wouldn't have done all of this if they were simply going to let it go and move on. So now they're hyping the potential for a new triple-demic. It's going to be COVID and the flu and something that is now apparently really important RSV all wrapped into one. And so everybody needs to be sure to vaccinate. And while Anthony Fauci is scheduled to leave his government job at the end of the year, and while he is also scheduled to be deposed on November 23rd by the attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana, he is still doing some media hits where he can get them and still attempting to reframe himself as the great hero of this entire period. This is an interview he gave this week on Australian television. So originally for the first week or so, when we were getting information that it was not readily spread from human to human, which was incorrect, because as we know now, it is very readily spread from human to human, even when someone is asymptomatic. So when the cases occurred in in China, the hint that something bad was going on was when, even though we didn't get a lot of transparent information from them, they were building thousand-bed hospitals literally overnight. So for them to do that, we were saying something must really be going on bad there, but we didn't have total transparency because they wouldn't let anyone in to take a look at what was going on. Did they fail the world on that front I by believe, not being I transparent? Believe, yes, I believe they did. And that's unfortunate. They should have been more transparent. They should have been, but they weren't. Steve Bannon this week said that the hunted are be going to come, the hunters, the whole Fauci family is going to be welcomed to investigations and described having paybacks across the board. That again is a threat towards you and to your family. How do you respond to that and the people who continually push this case? Jonathan, there's no way of adequately responding to such an outlandish statement by someone. I mean, that is something that borders on being criminal because he's essentially inciting people to violence against me and my family. I mean, that is an absolute explicit threat. Um, I mean, there's nothing you could say about that, that how horrible and inappropriate that is. There was a recent report showing there was a dramatic decline in the test scores in both English and in math in children during the COVID outbreak. And there was no difference in those regions or cities or states that closed the schools for a long time versus those who did a very temporary closing of the school. The test scores were equally diminished in both of them, which tells you that although interfering with the ability of children to go to school almost certainly does have a negative impact, but there are other things that go into the negative impact on children. So pretty much everything Anthony Fauci said there is an outright lie. His relationship 
with China and with the WHO is part of why they weren't transparent. Anthony Fauci covered for them at the beginning. Anthony Fauci was intimately involved in the creation of the virus, which we do know came from a lab. There's no reason why Anthony Fauci wouldn't have known more about what the pandemic plan was since he was intimately involved in creating the pandemic plan and creating the pandemic and creating the vaccine that we were told was going to solve the pandemic. And by the way, credit to the War Room crew for clipping up that interview and for Natalie Winters for doing the analysis on War Room today. It's worth checking that out. But they are still gunning for it. Back at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the first people I heard talk about COVID was a man from Johns Hopkins named Amish Adalja. And he was having conversations on Sam Harris's podcast about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. He was talking about how low the infection fatality rate was. This is in early March of 2020. And now he's out there two and a half plus years later, just shilling for the big pharma companies. It's worth remembering that the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security designed the SPARS pandemic 2025 to 2028 guidelines, the war game story about how they were going to roll out the COVID narrative to implement the agenda they had chosen to implement, the Great Reset Agenda. It was obvious at the time that this stuff was planned and orchestrated. It was not, we're surprised with this new disease. We need to be really careful in order to save lives. And we want to produce a vaccine that will surely save lives and put no one in danger. No, the plan has worked as they designed it to work. They implemented that plan. Now, it's been thwarted in many places, which is wonderful. I doubt most of this country will ever take a vaccine again. But by and large, they executed exactly the plan they had designed, and they designed that plan in conjunction with Anthony Fauci. And they're still keeping the cultural side of it going as well. We talked about the Atlantic article this week where Professor Emily Oster from Brown proposed a pandemic amnesty. And a lot of people got upset about it because they wanted to say, and I agree with them, obviously, I did a whole episode on it, that there would be no amnesty coming from us. But as I pointed out that day going through that article, and I don't think I've seen anyone else pointed out, she wasn't asking for an amnesty from us. She was offering an amnesty from people like her to the people who had been mean to her when she came out against school closures a year after the pandemic started. She still wanted to censor us. And she still wanted to mandate vaccinations for children, if not for COVID, then certainly for everything else. She still wants the censorship and she still wants the culture of shame when it comes to those of us who refuse to go along with the agenda at all. But they're pushing it even harder than that. Yesterday in the Los Angeles Times, an article with the headline, are the unvaccinated still a danger to the rest of us? For almost two years, COVID-19 vaccine holdouts have been the objects of earnest pleading and financial inducements of social media shaming and truth campaigns. They've missed weddings 
birthday celebrations and recitals, and even forfeited high-stakes athletic competitions. Until last month, they were barred from entering the United States and more than a 100 other countries. And to this writer, all of this is good and justified. Financial inducements, by the way, include not having a job anymore and potentially being locked out from your banking. Social media shaming and truth campaigns? Well, that's a pretty mild description of what became hate campaigns and enforced medical segregation. And yeah, people missed some important events because they were unvaccinated. But it turns out that the vaccine isn't safe and effective and never was and could never protect anyone else while it's also failing to protect the person who takes it. But she's not concerned about any of that. She actually thinks we didn't go far enough. Now the unvaccinated are suddenly back in the mix. They're dining in restaurants, rocking out at music festivals, and filling the stands at sporting venues. They mingle freely in places where they used to be shunned for fear they'd seed super spreader events. It's as if they're no longer hazardous to the rest of us. Or are they? I mean, what kind of society allows people to talk like this? She's upset that an entire class of tens of millions, probably over a hundred million Americans aren't vaccinated and that they're no longer being shunned. Clearly, the unvaccinated are a threat to themselves, said Dr. Jeffrey Shaman, an infectious disease specialist at Columbia University. As recently as August, their risk of dying of COVID-19 was six times higher than for people who were fully vaccinated and eight times higher than for people who were vaccinated and boosted, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And you can't doubt those numbers, even though they don't reflect the reality of the rest of the world and the rest of the data at all. But they're still authoritative because they're the CDC. It doesn't matter how many times they're wrong. It doesn't matter how many times Rochelle Walensky has had COVID. In fact, they won't even respond to FOIA requests for that information. But Shaman acknowledged the danger to the rest of us is a more debatable issue. Oh, well, that's good to know. There's still some debate on that, huh? Even though the vaccine can't prevent transmission or infection, it can't prevent serious illness or death. And according to reality, the vaccinated are getting COVID at higher rates and having serious illness and death at higher rates, including death from a whole new range of potential causes at much higher rates than people were dying from those causes before. When public officials imposed vaccine mandates, the unvaccinated certainly appeared to pose demonstrable dangers to their communities. No, they didn't. The data did not indicate that that was only a narrative. State and local leaders sought not only to suppress spread of the virus, but also to prevent their health care systems from being overwhelmed, degrading care for all. The unvaccinated made those goals harder to achieve since they were more likely to become infected and when they did to require hospitalization. Once again, not a single word of that paragraph is true. U.S. officials had long hoped to vaccinate the American public into a state of herd immunity in which so few people would be vulnerable to the virus that the outbreak would simply sputter out. That objective assumed a uniformly high uptake of vaccine across the nation. It also assumed a vaccine that protected against reinfection and did so durably. 
It also assumed that the vaccine would prevent infection in the first place, even though the data didn't indicate it at all. A vaccine that cannot prevent transmission or infection cannot help to achieve herd immunity. It is simply impossible. This was never the prior definition of herd immunity, which is why they changed the definition of herd immunity. It was also well known that no one should be trying to vaccinate a population in the midst of an outbreak. But they didn't care about that either because they didn't care about the actual science. All they cared about was the plan. But none of that came to pass. About 30% of Americans have yet to complete their initial series of COVID-19 shots, including the 20% who haven't rolled up their sleeves even once. Meanwhile, the virus continues to evolve in ways that erode vaccines protection, making breakthrough infections increasingly common. And again, that is false. That is not why that happens. It's not the virus doing that. It's the vaccines doing it through antibody dependent enhancement. Her statistics on the number of Americans who are taking the vaccines are also wrong. It's something like 10% of the country who has taken the most recent booster. Something like 95% of Americans are not vaccinating their children. Everybody knows, but writers like this one just pretend that they don't. The longer the pandemic drags on, the more complicated things get. For one thing, whether those who remain unvaccinated are still driving coronavirus spread hinges partly on the status of the U.S. population's immunity. Almost three years into the pandemic, that is a hard map to draw, both because the public's immunity comes from different sources and because it waxes and wanes. Well, that's actually not true. People with natural immunity do not see their protection wane and their natural immunity also prevents them from becoming sick from other variants caused by the vaccinated. There is also more than adequate proof that the vaccinated do shed their vaccine and the spike protein to other people, which causes them to get sick. And here we go with some more fake numbers. More than 200 million adults and nearly 25 million children ages five and up have completed a primary series of COVID-19 vaccine. However, against the Omicron variant, just being fully vaccinated confers little more than a whiff of protection against infection and illness. And as we discussed in the studies a few weeks ago, fully vaccinated now means people who are fully up to date on their subscription to the vaccine and also people who had gotten sick and recovered from the virus. So it includes natural immunity and unvaccinated not only includes people who have not gotten vaccinated and have not gotten sick, it also includes people who have gotten vaccinated and haven't stayed up to date because they realized that the vaccine doesn't work and it's actually very dangerous and they don't want to participate in the program anymore. For the 49% of fully vaccinated Americans who've had at least one booster dose, infection remains a possibility. But the prospects of becoming seriously ill or dying of COVID-19 are sharply reduced. Again, none of that is true. And how does fully vaccinated now encompass people who have had at least one booster dose? That's not up to date. They're really just making it all up. 
And then there's the natural immunity gained from a coronavirus infection. By February 2022, after the first wave of Omicron infections swept across the U.S., 58% of Americans were believed to have been infected at some point in the pandemic, leaving them with some modest level of protection. The ranks of the previously infected have surely increased since then, thanks to the second Omicron surge during the late spring and summer. Now, these surges happen when new rounds of vaccinations and boosters happen, and nothing could ever be more obvious. Also, believed to be infected? Well, were they infected or not? Because if she's going by people who had tested positive for coronavirus and the number of total cases, which doesn't suggest that the same number is the number of people, first of all, because the same people test over and over and over again, particularly the vaccinated who are the ones most likely to get COVID generating all of the positive tests. But they use the same process for deciding who's been vaccinated. They just count the total number of vaccinations and they say this many Americans have been vaccinated. But that's simply not true. And it's obviously untrue. And in the interest of time, I'm just going to jump closer down toward the bottom. It would be hard to assert that if everyone were vaccinated, the coronavirus would just go to ground. This pathogen has proved adept at finding ways around our vaccine protection and is likely to remain a presence among us for generations to come, like influenza and HIV. What a positive outlook. What a good reason to go out and get vaccinated. But the unvaccinated and undervaccinated are almost certainly playing an outsized role in the coronavirus's continued success, experts say. Exactly how much is hard to pinpoint. Scientists can quantify transmission differences between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in the lab. Applying those differences to the real world is much trickier, especially in a population as immunologically diverse as Americans now are. And isn't that interesting? They can only measure the differences in the lab where they make certain assumptions like, for instance, that the theoretical presence of an increase in antibodies would make it more difficult for someone to get sick, even though that's not true, and then extrapolate from there. That's how they reach these conclusions. This is what they've been doing the entire time. Finally, there's concern that unvaccinated and undervaccinated Americans could accelerate the emergence of new coronavirus variants, some of which are bound to be even more transmissible or more adept at evading existing COVID-19 vaccines and therapies. Either or both would cause new waves of transmission and illness. Again, none of that is the responsibility of the unvaccinated. The undervaccinated might be responsible for some of that, but that's because they got vaccinated. While it's a theoretical possibility, the unvaccinated are not prolific incubators of genetic variants. People with immune system deficiencies are much more likely to develop the long running bouts of COVID-19 that can spawn new variants with concerning mutations. And most of them are vaccinated. Oh, that's so interesting. Is it also true that the vaccine directly attacks the human immune system and that people's immune systems are functioning even worse than before as a result of taking the vaccine that is proven to destroy their immune system? Yeah. 
COVID-19 surges promote the emergence of variants. Not true. New vaccines promote the emergence of variants. By virtue of the sheer number of people infected, a surge increases the number of times the virus replicates and offers it more chances to mutate. If it drives hospitalizations, it will ensnare patients being treated for immune compromising conditions such as HIV, cancer and organ transplants. So again, she's taking all of these things that are directly caused by the vaccine program and attributing them to the unvaccinated. Each and every one of these claims is factually false, but it doesn't matter because this is not science. This is religion. These people worship false authority. They worship the authoritative source. They worship the science. They are literally sacrificing their own children on the altar of this false authority they worship. And as the unvaccinated are joined by ever larger numbers of people who are under vaccinated, surges become a more plausible prospect. Again, that's untrue. And it's hilarious that she admits that the number of people who are no longer taking the vaccines is increasing. And it is increasing because everyone's found out there's not another direction this is going to go in. People routinely confuse their community's state of immunity with their own vulnerability, said Dr. Peter Hotez, one of the main characters in the Fauci, Gates, WHO, NIH, NIAID scam on the world. Co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital and dean of Baylor College of Medicine's National School of Tropical Medicine. He says that they're confusing their community's state of immunity with their own vulnerability. And that is because they were told to do that throughout all of 2021 and most of 2022. We were told that the places without much vaccine intake were hotbeds for potential spread and that places with the highest levels of vaccine acceptance we're much safer. So people aren't confusing that. The science on the television told them that. People like Peter Hotez told them that. When fewer of their neighbors are getting sick and dying and high vaccination rates have suppressed COVID-19, even the unvaccinated feel invulnerable. Yes, we feel invulnerable because we understand that the vaccines don't work and COVID isn't very deadly. That could be a lethal mistake, Peter Hotez warned. So think about all of this. Think about how we get our information and what sort of information we're getting. All of this is top down. None of it is provably attached to any empirical reality that stands up in the face of virtually any questioning or any dissent. And that's why they can't allow it. That's why they're freaking out. They're not even okay with people talking about the stories they've already told us that have proven to be wrong. Even mentioning stories they told us, things they told us can get us censored. 
because it's got nothing to do with protecting marginalized people. The most marginalized and vulnerable people are the people who are censored. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got nothing to do with inflammatory rhetoric, being able to create real world violence. And it's got nothing to do with dangerous medical misinformation. The only thing they care about is full, complete, total control over all of the means of information, because without that, everybody realizes they've been lying the entire time. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!